the cuckoo doesn't sing, kill it. Ah, my lord Nobunaga. I can see why you thought that way. Especially considering the state of the country when you spoke these words. You had such vision, my lord, but it only went so far. You shouldn't kill the cuckoo, my lord. If you do, then you have no bird to sing at all. I convinced, negotiated, and made so many of the provinces, my lord, that you instructed me to bring under our fold. I didn't outright kill them. I made them. See? So? If the cuckoo doesn't sing, make it. The Hibshman Experience, Episode 35. Hideyoshi Toyotomi. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you are a peasant in the Warring States era of Japan. You have no royal bloodline. In fact, you're not even sure what your bloodline is because you don't have a surname. Your dad, if you're even sure he was your real dad, was a foot soldier for the samurai. He wasn't even a samurai himself. And he dies when you're only seven. You're then sent to a Buddhist temple to study, but sitting for long hours and meditation really isn't what's doing it for you. So you leave seeking some sort of adventure. You briefly work for one of the local lords as one of his many servants, but you're young and you get the idea that, well, these lords sure do have a lot of money and you decide to steal a large portion of it. You promptly double your pace out of there, you know, when uh, they found out what you stole. You then make your way to another province and enter the service of another lord. And you get a pretty sweet gig. You're his personal sandal bearer. Sandal bearer is actually a coveted position during this time period of Japan. It's actually one that has a lot of respect, you might be surprised to find out. So anyway, you're the new sandal bear for this guy. You don't feel the urge to steal from him, because this guy, who's only a few years older than you, seems very ambitious, and is gonna take on the world. And you're gonna do more than just carry his sandals around. You're gonna get your hands dirty. It's all hands on deck, so to speak, for this upstart that you're now working for. You get your first chance to show what you're made of when the enemy you're attacking has five times the number of troops your guy does. Oh, and he also happens to be the guy you stole all that money from. You go into that situation with a lot at stake, don't you? probably thinking to yourself, if we lose or I'm captured, I'm in big trouble. But the guy you're working for is kind of a brilliant guy, and while yes, he's taking a big risk, 
He's doing it smart and calculating. Your moment comes and you fight pretty well, in fact. Not only did you fight well, but you demonstrated good leadership potential. And your, your team, the army that you're with, the guy you're working for, you not only win, but the guy that you stole that money from is dead. And your boss has decided to promote you because you fought so well and because of your potential. He keeps promoting you until you're one of the three people that he trusts the most. He relies on you to convince enemy strongholds and provinces to surrender because you happen to be a pretty good negotiator. You're kind of a, a natural businessman. And he keeps rewarding you with more places to govern for him. You've got a pretty good thing going. This guy that you're working for has been good to you, and he's almost reunified this whole country. On your way to take one of the few remaining holdouts, a messenger hurries to you and tells you that your boss, the guy who's treated you so well for your service, is dead. And not just dead, but betrayed by one of the two other guys of whom you were counted as his confidants. You'd be pretty shocked and heartbroken and angry. So many emotions would probably be going on for you. This is what it was probably like for Hideyoshi Toyotomi upon hearing the news of Nobunaga's death caused by the betrayal of Mitsuhide Akechi. Hideyoshi was very loyal to Nobunaga to the point where he vowed to finish the work that he started. But, Hideyoshi's going to have to act fast. Word would begin to spread to the lower ranks, and eventually the citizenry that Nobunaga was dead, and the whole thing that you fought for could be undone. It would fracture into smaller and smaller pieces of factions, all making the claim that they had the right to rule, and Japan would be right back where it started. Hideyoshi felt that he needed to finish the last task Nobunaga assigned him, which was to deal with the Mori clan. Now he needed to get it done quickly. He kept Nobunaga's death a secret in his negotiations with the Mori clan. He convinced the majority of the clan to agree to the peace terms with the exception of their general, Muniharu Shimizu, who committed seppuku, considering he didn't have the support of the rest of the clan. Bloodshed was mostly averted by the negotiator Hideyoshi. So with the Mori clan subdued, he quickly marched to Kyoto in hot pursuit of Mitsuhide. Sources state that Hideyoshi had his army march 40 kilometers a day to get to the capital as soon as possible. Along the way, one of Nobunaga's sons, Nobutaka, joined Hideyoshi, 
probably wanting revenge for his father's death, which bolstered Hideyoshi's forces to about 40,000. Mitsuhide, of course, heard that Hideyoshi was on his way. He originally had his troops occupying two castles, but when he heard that 40,000 were already assembled and coming for him, he retreated south to a place called Yamazaki, so that his forces would be all together instead of divided in two. should be noted that Mitsuhide is estimated to have had somewhere between only 10,000 and 16,000. Hideyoshi finally arrives and positions himself on top of Mount Tenozan, which was an important spot for controlling the roads to Kyoto. Mitsuhide had positioned himself behind a small river, which did provide him a good defensive position against an opposing force. But this whole ordeal was personal to Hideyoshi. He had hired the services of ninja to sneak into Mitsuhide's camp, and set fire to tents, buildings, and if they could, supplies. Whether or not they actually destroyed much wasn't the point. Hideyoshi just wanted to deprive them of sleep. To demoralize them that way, which the ninja accomplished for most of the night. I want to make a quick note here that I will sometimes refer to Hideyoshi's army by his clan name. Hideyoshi eventually... Uh, gets the surname Toyotomi, so I'll refer to his army as the Toyotomi army, much the same way as I did the Oda for Nobunaga. So just a note for those of you trying to follow along here. So the next morning, when Hideyoshi finally moved in, he was briefly pushed back from uh, Arcbus fire, the firearms, the muskets, from Mitsuhide's forces in his center, but Hideyoshi must have had some sort of intuition because he felt confident to not only send his center again, but also his left and right flanks. What followed was a slaughter. Panic broke out in the Akechi camp, with most of his men with most of Mitsuhide's men scattering. The Akechi army fled to a garrison that quickly collapsed as the Toyotomi Oda force pursued. As for Mitsuhide himself, he would retreat even further south to a little town called Ogurusu, where he would hide for a short while until he was found out and killed by a group of bandits. Mitsuhide would be remembered for his short rule because after he had killed Nobunaga, he had declared himself Shogun, and he ruled for 13 days. But now he's gone, and that's what he's remembered for, is for short rule and for betrayal. So now the real work for Hideyoshi begins, because by now, the word's out. Nobunaga's dead, and this is known to basically all of Japan. The Oda faction was fracturing into three camps, if you don't include the small force of Mitsuhide's. You have one faction, led by Hideyoshi, serving as a protector to Nobunaga's grandson. 
Another faction was led by one of Nobunaga's other trusted retainers, Katsuye Shibata, who had the support of Nobutaka. And Nobukatsu, who went to Ieyasu Tokugawa, who was Nobunaga's primary ally. Remember, I like to think of Hideyoshi as a negotiator, kind of a businessman. He did attempt to bring the faction together. He called for a council to try to settle the succession issue. The council initially declared that Nobutada, who was killed at Hanoji with Nobunaga, that Nobutada's three-year-old son was the rightful heir to the Oda clan. Hideyoshi agreed to this, feeling that the offspring of the eldest child would be the rightful heir. Now, this, now, now uh, this outraged Nobutaka, who must have looked at Hideyoshi thinking he should be the heir since he just helped him to defeat Mitsuhide. Katsuye sided with Nobutaka. The other son, Nobukatsu, allied himself with Ieyasu Tokugawa. It's kind of interesting to think about leaving that meeting. Instead of everyone coming to an agreement, you've splintered into three groups. And now those three groups are all going to have to fight it out to see who is right. What's more, they all know that they need to fight it out quickly so that they don't lose all the work they accomplished while Nobunaga was still around. Between the three groups, they control most of the country, but not all of it. There are still regional pockets of resistance. Relatively speaking, it does get settled quickly. Hideyoshi and Katsuie first battle it out at a place called Shizugatake. Hideyoshi had the larger force with 50,000 to Katsuye's 27,000. Although 27,000 is nothing to sneeze at when it comes to military sizes, especially in this type of conflict. And it would have drug out longer were it not for one of Katsuye's generals not listening to an order. Katsuye ordered his general Sakuma to pull back to a place called Oiwa. Sakuma ignored it and thought he could capture a castle in time, believing he had three days before Hideyoshi would even arrive. Sakuma apparently missed the part where Hideyoshi's army was very good at forced marches. Sources claim that Hideyoshi's men marched 50 miles in six hours. Now the details are left out. If it was Hideyoshi's cavalry, which it most likely was, that arrived first and his foot soldiers afterwards. But even on horseback, 50 miles and even 8 hours is an impressive feat. Regardless, Hideyoshi arrives much sooner than expected and routes Sakuma, pushing him all the way back to Katsuye's main castle. Hideyoshi laid siege to the castle for three days, and had Katsuye surrounded. Katsuye tried to convince his wife Oichi, who was also Nobunaga's sister, to leave the castle, knowing that Hideyoshi wouldn't harm her or her daughters. 
Oichi agreed to their daughters leaving, but refused to leave Katsue's side and committed seppuku alongside him. Nobutaka would also do the same, and even wrote a death poem accusing Hideyoshi of being part of his father's death, although that seems to be a bit of a stretch, at least according to historical sources. Hideyoshi had consolidated most of the faction under him at this point, but he still had one big issue to deal with, which was the other son, Nobukatsu, who was allied with a very important ally, the Tokugawa. Hideyoshi and Ieyasu had a lot of respect for each other, to the point that they didn't fight each other directly. There was one conflict at two nearby places, Komaki and Nagagute, that was indecisive. Hideyoshi and Ieyasu met afterwards and made peace, and even persuaded Nobukatsu to make peace as well, not wanting to see another of the Oda take their own lives. After making peace with Nobukatsu, I, I kind of picture Hideyoshi basically saying to him, Look, kid, I know we had a misunderstanding, but don't worry about anything happening to you. Nothing is going to happen to you or your family while I'm in charge. Oh yeah, I'm in charge. Remember that. So with the Oda faction reunified under Hideyoshi, the reunification of Japan could continue. Over the next seven years, Hideyoshi would bring the remaining provinces under his control. This included the Echigo and Kai provinces, once ruled by Kenshin Uesugi and Shingen Takeda, respectively. The last major battle for Hideyoshi would be in 1590, at the Siege of Odawara, and is considered the most odd and unconventional siege in the entire Warring States era. Odawara was held by the Hojo clan, who were the last real resistance. The rest of the provinces were so small that it was just a matter of time for them to be pushed over. The Hojo knew that Hideyoshi was coming, and they built up their castle defenses. Hideyoshi not only assembled an army, but a navy to take on the Hojo. The Hojo had an army of about 82,000. And I'd like to point out that had they had an army like that in the earlier days of the era, they might have been a big power player. But the army that Hideyoshi brings, remember, he has over two-thirds of Japan under his control by this point. He brings a force of about 220,000. It's pretty overwhelming. With numbers like this on both sides, you would expect a massive epic battle. The kind you'd see in a Hollywood movie where each army charges each other and the battlefield is just covered in corpses. That is not the case here. Odawara, despite the large forces on each side, saw very little fighting. There were only a handful of skirmishes. What Hideyoshi did was he had his entire army 
completely surround Odawara Castle so that nobody could get out, and nobody could come help the Hojo. Not that there were that many groups left who could offer any real help. And he positioned them just far enough outside of the Hojo being able to make use of their firearms effective at all. This was a starvation tactic. And it went on for three months. To make matters worse for the Hojo, the Toyotomi army during these three months were basically throwing one long bender. The Hojo could see their enemies enjoying themselves with numerous parties that had music, booze, prostitutes, concubines, acrobats, fire eaters, jugglers, all the entertainment that you could possibly get in medieval Japan. And the Hojo were starving. Imagine being a regular soldier in the Hojo castle. You're probably eating once a day. It's probably just a piece of bread or some rice. And your enemies are just a few hundred yards away, having the time of their lives. It's actually kind of amazing to think that the Hojo lasted for as long as they did before they finally surrendered. But they did finally surrender. And two years later, the last remaining pockets of resistance were brought under Toyotomi control. Japan was finally under one banner. Something seemed to happen to Hideyoshi at this time, and historians are not even sure the entire reason. He continued to protect the Oda clan, but they were sort of relegated to more of a ceremonial position and didn't have the authority that they used to under Nobunaga. Hideyoshi's son, Hidenaga, sounds like he kind of named him after his former master, Nobunaga, died at the age of three. He had to name his nephew, Hidesugu, his heir. Hideyoshi's health was also beginning to falter. He had fulfilled Nobunaga's dream of unifying Japan, and yet he didn't feel accomplished. He didn't feel secure in his own legacy. He remembered Nobunaga had mentioned in the past the idea of conquering China. So Hideyoshi felt that he should adopt that dream as well. I wonder, I wonder if Hideyoshi felt like he was in Nobunaga's shadow to some extent. I get the impression he was not able to see that he, are, he had already secured his name in history. So he decides to follow through with this dream of conquering China. Hideyoshi had been in communication with the Koreans for a few years, asking for unhindered passage through Korea for them to invade China. 
the Koreans wrote back expressing their concerns to Hideyoshi that they were not comfortable with conflict that would most likely be fought in their own country and hurt their own lands. Hideyoshi heard and understood these concerns and opted to invade Korea. It started off surprisingly well for Hideyoshi. In four months, he had already gained control of most of Korea and had a route into China through Manchuria. The Korean king, however, had managed to flee to China and requested the help of the Ming Dynasty emperor to help him retake Korea, to which the Chinese quickly agreed and sent an army of 43,000 to halt the Japanese advance. The Korean navy also caught the Japanese navy off guard and eradicated it. Hideyoshi would attempt one more time to invade through Korea, but it went even, first, even worse than the first attempt. So he decided to give up on that dream. He said to, his, to one of his commanders, Don't let my soldiers become spirits in a foreign land. Hideyoshi in his later years became less of the calm negotiator that I like to remember him as and more delirious and babbling. He was a very complex and contradictory person in terms of his actions and accomplishments. Whether or not, as he got older and wielded the political authority of the whole country, whether or not that all went to his head, or if he began to, to uh, succumb to some sort of mental illness or, or a combination of the two, I can only speculate. But... He could in one turn be very kind and benevolent and then turn around and be very cruel. He ordered his samurai to give up their lands and take up residence and castles so that the peasantry could use the land, but then turned around and persecuted the Christians, which is very odd considering how influenced he was by his former master Nobunaga, who was very open to other ideas and cultures, and who used this as a means to help put down Buddhist resistance. Hideyoshi banned non-samurai from carrying any weaponry, like swords, bows and arrows, or firearms. But yet he also would ban slavery from the country. Like I said, very... Almost, I don't want to say bipolar, but it's almost like he's the classic dictator. He could be very benevolent or he could be very cruel. He would die in 1598. His death would be kept secret for a time by his council of five elders, which was headed by Ieyasu Tokugawa, the man who will continue and bookend this story, this era of Japanese history. But I guess some closing thoughts on Hideyoshi is that 
He's a man who you could use as an easy example of why you should remember all parts of history, the good and the bad. The mistakes and the bad choices he made should be remembered as lessons to learn from and avoid, but to also remember the good things he accomplished and, if you're someone who likes to look for heroes and role models in history, emulate the good things that he did. And as befitting a Hipsham Experience episode ending and putting more of a spotlight on the generous negotiator that I like to think of when I think of Hideyoshi Toyotomi is a quote of his about why you should be generous. And it goes like this, quote, Compensation is counterintuitive. The more treasure you give away to those who serve well, the more treasure will return to you. But few people perceive this simple truth. Most try to keep as much as they can for themselves and give little away. That's why their purses refuse to fatten. End quote. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating. And until next time, as always, thanks for listening.